This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we ask a very basic question. Who needs a win more at UFC 249, Anthony Pettis or Donald Cerrone? Speaking of Donald Cerrone, we talked to one of his coaches heading into UFC 249, John Wood out of Syndicate MMA, and we talked to the lead play-by-play commentator for the UFC, John Anik. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. Who needs a win more at UFC 249, Donald Cerrone or Anthony Pettis? Cobb, if you have a minute, you can, or just a second rather, and you can come to the uh, microphone here. Cobb, our intrepid reporter, he's the king of bandits, the king of banter. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, at SiriusXM Fight Nation on Instagram, I saw that a poll had gone up. Has one gone up on Twitter as well, at MMA on SiriusXM? I'm not going to pull up on Twitter. Our, our current poll is just on the SiriusXM Fight Nation Instagram. Can you give me who is in the lead right now? Let me look that up for you. I think the answer, I, this morning I saw Pettis, no, excuse me, this morning I saw Cerrone was in the lead, which I thought was actually kind of strange. I actually disagree with that. Um, I actually think Pettis needs it more, which I'm going to make the case for here in just a second. You can give me an update on Gchat if you want, Cobb. Uh, as we speak right now, uh, Mr. Pettis has has slowly edged it out with 51% of the vote. Ah, okay, Cobb, let's do this very quickly, very quickly. Who needs a win more? Pettis or Cerrone? What do you think? I feel like the the my gut reaction is Cerrone, especially coming off that loss to McGregor. I feel like he needs to get back on track. But Pettis probably needs it more. I believe the spell's at it's at welterweight, no? Uh yeah, it is. So if he really wants to make this welterweight thing work, I think he needs a, another win in that division. So my heart says Cerrone, but my mind is saying Pettis needs it. All right. Interesting little choice there. Let's do this. One more time, I'm going to give the numbers out. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Who needs a win more? Anthony Pettis at UFC 249 or Donald Cerrone at UFC 249? Phone lines are open. would love to talk to you about this. As Cobb had indicated, the fight is at welterweight, not lightweight, even though both of them had fought uh, previously, I think, at lightweight when they had their first fight. Let me update you on where Anthony Pettis is. 33, only 33 years old, man. Unbelievable. And only turned 33 in January, by the way. Still kind of a young buck here. He has been up and down since beating Gilbert Melendez and mostly down. Since beating Gilbert Melendez, he's had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight losses and only one, two, three, four wins. So he's been four and eight since that incredible run through Jeremy Stevens, Joe Lazon, Donald Cerrone, Benson Henderson, and Gilbert Melendez. That was the run of his career. Since then, he dropped a decision to Dos Anjos, a bad one, too. Split decision loss to Eddie Alvarez. He lost to Edson Barboza. He beat Charles Oliveira. He lost to Max Holloway. He beat Jim Miller. He lost to Dustin Poirier. He beat Michael Chiesa. He lost to Tony Ferguson. He beat Stephen Thompson. I mean, he beat good guys. And then he had back-to-back losses to Nate Diaz. And then the real tough one was against Carlos Diego Fajera. Now, now uh, Fajera trains with Saif Saud out of Fortis MMA and has long been the dark horse 
in that lightweight division. I know this fight's at welterweight, but the last one was at lightweight. He is a guy who's getting better and better and better and better, and he's with a great coach, and he's with a great team. But still, when you look at some of the names that he lost to, you're like, well, he's losing to the Holloways and the Poiriers and the Fergusons and the Diazes and the Dos Anjos and the Alvarez and the Barboza. These are guys who either had titles or, or in many cases, fought for them. The Fajera one was bad because he doesn't have that name value, even though I, I certainly recognize the, the, the legitimate fighting ability that he has, but also because it just wasn't especially competitive. He got taken to the ground and just kind of controlled for a round and then another one. And he got submitted. It just, there was no, you know, even in the fight with Ferguson, it was back and forth and he dropped him. Let's go to some other ones here. Uh, the fight with Dustin Poirier. I mean, that was back and forth war in Norfolk, Virginia. Max Holloway was the terrible weight cut. Barboza was a tough loss, but he hung in there for the entirety of it. Um, Eddie Alvarez was back and forth. And then the Dos Anjos was a, was a tough loss, but he fought all five rounds. My point is that last loss, you felt like, whoa, you know, you've had some ups, you've had some downs, but that, we don't know, but that felt like it could be a turning point in terms of the kinds of guys he beats and the kinds of guys he loses to, right? So that, that stands out to me. The other part about it is, and I mentioned this with the interview with John Wood, dude, like Anthony Pettis, man, he's not fighting chumps. He's fighting very good guys, very good fighters. I mean, there's not a chump in there. I mean, listen to who he has fought from the WEC on. Bart Palaszewski, Danny Castillo, Alex Karalexis, Shane Roller, Benson Henderson, twice, by the way, Clay Guida, Jeremy Stevens, Joe Lazon, as I mentioned, Donald Cerrone, and then all the guys he lost to, Alvarez, Dos Anjos, Barboza, Oliveira, Holloway, Miller, Poirier, Chiesa, Ferguson, Thompson, Diaz, the only one with that significant name value there and high-level ability, although he has high-level ability, but in terms of what the public recognizes, is Diego Fajera. I mean, dude, that has worn on him. The game has worn on him. He has spent since 2009, basically. So for the last 11 years, he has been doing nothing but fighting absolute murderers. That's taken a toll. You know, when I thought about the fight with Diaz, I had thought Diaz, and you know, I, I get him wrong, I get him right in terms of predictions, but the reason why I felt very confident about the Diaz one was I was like, well, Ferguson had just fought him. And Ferguson is not Diaz, but Ferguson fought him in a way that Diaz does, which is, you know, lean on your cardio, push him backwards, um, push him against the fence, and have him react to it. And Ferguson did that. Ferguson had him backing up behind the two black lines, kind of just reacting, not really setting the tone for the fight. And it just felt like the game was wearing on him a little bit. Well, Diaz went and did the exact same thing, virtually. He took him down a little bit more, and that made that a bigger part of it. But, but yeah, like uh, he's got a lot of fight in him. But I don't think he's got as much as he did at one point in his career, let's say when he was beating Cerrone the first time, all the way back in 2013, which, by the way, he got rid of Cerrone inside of a round, 235 into the first. You know, the game has been hard on him, understandably. And so to me, it's like you're 33. You only turned 33 in January. You, you know, you had a real bad loss in terms of the public perception of it anyway in the last one. Certainly back-to-back -back is never great anyway. You're up a weight class. You don't have to worry about the weight-cutting part, which I know, you know obviously going down to 145 did a number on him, and there was a catch weight, and when Kiesa missed weight, 157, it wasn't his fault. I'm just saying you don't, have to, you don't have to make that extra bleeding out, so to speak, to get there. Man, that's a pretty strong case for needing a win. And here's the other part about it that no one's really talking about that I feel like is a big component as well. Dude, this is a rematch. This is a rematch. 
Pettis won the first time. <laughs> he won at 235 into the first. Cerrone's even talked about it all this week. The guy, say, he says, he kicked the liver out of my body. I mean, this is a huge... How do you go from doing that to losing? What would that say? Because it's not like Cerrone's been like inactive since then. It's not like Cerrone's been on the shelf since then. It's not like Cerrone's done nothing since then. He's been getting beaten up and winning and losing and fighting tough guys the entire time too. And he's st- and then he comes out as the victor. And this- the first one wasn't even competitive. So to me, it's like, I don't even know how you could argue Cerrone. I mean, I'm not telling you Cerrone doesn't need a, a, a big win. That's not what I'm arguing. He absolutely does. The, 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 the bad taste that the loss to McGregor must have put in his mouth, that was three in a row. Remember, because it was Ferguson, Gaethje, and then Connor. I mean, you don't want to have four losses in a row in the UFC if you can avoid it. Three is bad enough. Four is really bad. Not that they're going to send him his walking papers, but still. But, dude, if you won the first time and you're younger than the other guy and you have technically fought less than the other guy, they're going to expect you to win. What do the odds makers have to say about this? Best fight odds. Uh, let's see. They've got. What do they have these two? Uh, they got Pettis as a slight favorite. Minus 135 to plus 115, more or less. That is interesting. That's about right if you ask me. It's very, very competitive. You're asking who needs a win more. I don't know how. I mean, if Pettis loses that three in a row and then to a guy you previously beat badly, wow, that would be a really, really, really bad sign uh, in my view. A really bad sign. I still think the answer is Pettis. But we should go over the answers, or rather I should say the case, for Donald Cerrone. Because there is no denying he has not had his best run of late. Donald Cerrone stands at 37 years old. Remember, he's five years older than Anthony Pettis. He's already had three losses in a row. This is the second time in his career he's had a three-loss stretch. He had one back in 2017 at welterweight when he lost a, uh, yeah, I think that was at, Yes, that was at welterweight when he lost to Jorge Masvidal, Robbie Lawler, and Darren Till. Um, now, he, he rebounded. He beat Yancey Medeiros, then lost to Leon Edwards. But then he beat Mike Perry, Alexander Hernandez, and Al Iaquinta, one of the best wins of his career since then. Now, I mentioned that Pettis had had 13 fights since their first meeting. Right, remember, the game has just beaten up Anthony Pettis. He's been in war after war after war. Tough. Or even when they weren't in wars, just you know, for as long as they lasted, brutal fights. Here is how many fights, by contrast, Donald Cerrone has had. One, two, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Pettis will be the 27th. Folks, Anthony Pettis has only had total in his career um, 32 fights. Donald's fought almost that much since their last meeting. Double, essentially, what Pettis had. This is what I mean. Like, I want to give you the case for... And uh, for Donald Cerrone here, but it's like, 
all of the arguments about the decline of Pettis's game as it's been perceived in terms of how much the I mean, again, not that he's a bad fighter by any stretch of imagination or that he can't win. He's expected to win merely that the game has been really, really hard on him. It's like, dude, however hard the game's been on him. I mean, consider you've had twice as many fights in that time for Cerrone. But the key is this. In 2016, he had actually let me go back after losing to Pettis. He beat KJ Nunes, then lost to Dos Anjos for the title. But after that, Starting around 2013, late 2013, he was he's just been on a tremendous run for a long time. He beat Dunham, Martins, Barboza, Miller, Alvarez, Jury, Henderson, John Magdesi, easily the best run of his career. And then he lost to Dos Anjos again, right? But then he beat Alex Oliveira at, at welterweight, Patrick Cote, Rick Story, and Matt Brown, the second best run of his career. And then it's after that that things started to get haywire. So starting around 2017, he has had, let's see, seven losses and four wins. He's almost like Pettis, where if he loses to Pettis, he'll be at, just like him four in his, for his last um, 12. He'll be four and eight. But the problem with Cerrone is he doesn't have some of the higher level achievements that Pettis has in terms of capturing a title. But he's got this reputation of sort of anytime, anywhere that I think he likes to keep up and also that has been foisted upon him to a degree. The thing that separates him from Pettis is that Pettis lost to somebody that a lot of people did not know, so there's not as much visibility on that reality. I mean, I'm paying attention to it. We're talking about it on the show, but for your average person who's a fight fan, if I said, who did Pettis last fight and who did he lose to? I don't know that a lot of people would know off the top of their head or, you know, uh, oh, it was that other dude, that Fajeda guy, Carlos, Diego, whatever. Okay, name somebody else he's beaten. How many people could do that off the top of their head? Not many. The problem that Cerrone is up against is, one, the three-fight loss streak is bad. Granted, it's to Ferguson, Gaethje, and McGregor, um, where if Gaethje wins, you'll have three people who held titles in that weight class. But the point being is it was such a high-profile loss. It was in front of the world. Everybody saw it. The whole world got wind of it. Or witnessed it. And it wasn't just that you lost on a big stage. You lost without landing a strike. I mean, Pettis' loss wasn't great either. He just kind of, it just wasn't a ton there to, to look back on fondly. But on the other hand, I mean, even as bad as that was, it wasn't as bad as this. I mean, the biggest fight of your career and you had maybe the worst performance. You know, that will stick with people in their memory. When people remember you, they, I mean, it, it, this sounds tautological, but here's what I mean. When they remember you, they remember you, which is to say, if you remember Pettis, you might remember him as a guy who uh, won a championship because that stands out in your mind. And you'll remember some of the losses too because those will stand out in your mind. The loss to Fajeda won't really stand out probably to most people because they don't actually remember it. You are remembered by the high points of the things you have done, both good and bad. So all of Cerrone's major wins will be remembered too, but this one loss, whatever value you want to ascribe to it, is going to absolutely define this era of his career. Dude, getting back on the winning track and being able to do it against a guy who beat you badly the last time you fought, in the case of Anthony Pettis, would be Maybe transformative is a big word, but valuable seems like not enough.
major, major, major opportunity there for Cowboy. Huge. So to me, it's a little bit different. You know, I asked the question, who needs the win more? To me, who needs the win more is Pettis. But to me, the person who might actually get more value out of it in terms of public perception would be Cowboy, which sounds almost contradictory, but they're not, they're not exactly the same. In terms of a boost he might get, this would be big. I don't think that Pettis would get as much of a boost as Pettis, as uh, Cerrone would get if he won. I really don't believe that because I don't think he's coming from as the same kind of public perception of a deficit. So he doesn't need to make up, so to speak, so to speak, as much territory, which isn't to say a loss for either guy would not be devastating in their own way, but suffice to say, there we are. So big doings, man, on Saturday. By the way, this fight we're talking about, for folks who may not even realize, this fight is not even on the main card. Can you believe that? I believe this is the main event of the prelims, which will air on ESPN. Let me make sure I'm, uh, before I give you fake news that that's correct. Yes, that is correct. This will be the last fight before the pay-per-view starts. Cerrone versus Pettis, the rematch, 170 pounds. Isn't that crazy? This fight is that good. It is that important. It is that consequential with these kinds of names. It's not even on the pay-per-view main card. Crazy to consider that. Crazy to consider the depth of the card given where that is. Although it makes a lot of sense, right? If you want to sell about some pay-per-views, put some names on there at the marquee slot that might get them to ante up, especially when you know two guys like that are going to throw down. So that that actually that bears some... Uh, the hallmarkings of a sales pitch, essentially, to the audience. But that's a crazy one, man. That's a real crazy one. Cerrone just absolutely living in the shadow of a... I mean, you had Stephen A. Smith tearing into the guy for his last loss. Pettis didn't have to suffer from any of that. But Pettis, when you, when you sift through the noise and you look at what the details are and you pay attention... You begin to notice, huh, there's a troubling sign here, maybe. And to have beaten a guy that convincingly, only to have half as many fights with him as him, I should say, since your, the timing of your rematch, and then to lose? Dude, you want to talk about an ultimate sign of decline? That would be it. I'm not even trying to do like a, I'm not even doing a bit. I'm not trying to do some kind of like talk radio. Let's just be mean to athletes for the sake of being mean. I'm not. How, how else can you pitch that? You can't say the guy took less damage. You can't say the guy didn't fight good fighters. The guy's had any number of injuries. And by the way, Pettis has had a number of injuries as well. That should be a big discussion point here too. Both guys are just reeling from the amount of damage this all has done to their bodies. But it, it, it is a crazy, crazy moment um, for everybody here watching the damage that these two have suffered and the consequence of a win and a loss. Huge, huge opportunity if they can get their hand raised. And then depending on who it is, fairly consequential significance for a defeat as well. 
This week on World of Basketball, European coaching legend and former San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Ettore Messina dropped by to talk about whether or not he's surprised by the immediate impact that Luka Doncic has had on the NBA. I thought he was going to be a good player in the NBA, honestly. I could not ever imagine that he could have had such an impact right off the bat right. in terms of producing triple doubles like in our peanuts. I think that the, the key thing in his career has been that Coach Carlisle gave him the ball and put him at the point guard. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora. One of the big fights this weekend, uh, everybody knows, it's the return of Donald Cerrone. It's the return of Anthony Pettis, a, uh, a rematch, of course, but a really interesting contest between two vets of the game. Here to help us uh, talk more about it is the owner and uh, head coach over at Syndicate MMA and a coach for Donald Cerrone as well. It is uh, my friend and yours, John Wood. Hi, John. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Hi. Well, yeah, of course. Um, first of all, let me just ask. I'm not sure I know the story here. How did you end up working with Donald Cerrone? Um, so I've known Cowboy for a long time and whenever he comes to Vegas, he's always stopped in the gym over at syndicate and worked with the guys and trained. And I've, I've held for him a few times before and, and we've been friends and, uh, for, for quite a long time. And we've kind of, uh, teased the idea of, of working together a few times, just never worked out. And, um, you know, during obviously all this, uh, stuff going on with the coronavirus and all that, you know, my gym shut down, everything shut down. Um, so I didn't have a lot going on and it was kind of funny cause he had posted, you know, got the fight or whatever. And I just responded on his, uh, Instagram like, Hey, if you want me to come clean the gym for a couple of weeks or whatever, let me know. And, uh, and sure shit, they hit me up the next day and, and then just was out here two days later. Wow. It's, social media is at, at, at one time a scourge at other times, just an enabler of pretty amazing stories. Before we follow up on that, though, very quickly, um, I know it's a hard time for gym owners at, at the risk of sort of probing here. Um, how are you dealing with some of the challenges from the shutdown as a gym owner? Man, I mean, just to be honest, it sucks. You know, it's terrible. Um, Gym's closed. All my fighters are going crazy. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Everything's up in the air. Um, obviously, it's it's going to be a good thing to see the UFC kick off and hopefully, you know, kind of get the sport back going. But you know, my biggest worry is, um, you know, we have you know four or five hundred students at Syndicate, um, and those are just regular people. You know, the average everyday people, and those are the people that pay the bills for us. And, you know, and it's it's one of those things where we really all don't know. We don't even know when we're going to be able to open up yet and what it's going to be like when people come back. Are people going to have money to spend? Are people going to be fearful of, you know, training with other people? We are very, you know, obviously close quarter contact, you know, um, hands on. So it's really it's really going to be interesting to see what uh, what happens after all this. So it's, it's a little bit scary, but I, I have uh, – you know, I have high hopes and, and good thoughts that, that it will return to normal as soon as possible. All right. Well, let's focus now on the fight with Don Cerrone. I appreciate your candor. Uh, you know what? I, I don't want to litigate Stephen A's comments, but there was one part about that kind of drove me nuts, which was, first of all, he was like, oh, well, you know, if you go back to his comments on that night at UFC 246, he, he, even, he didn't use the word quit, but he said he thought he gave up. And what really bothered me about it, uh, John, was number one, listen to Cerrone's comments. They don't really indicate that that is true. But more to the point, 
this was the thing that I think was lost on everyone, everybody. In a 364-day span, he fought Alexander Hernandez, Al Iaquinta, which, by the way, I think was in Australia, if memory serves. Then he fought uh, Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, and Conor McGregor. I mean, you want to talk about the murderer's row of murderer's rows. I mean, if you could beat all of those guys, you're a bad dude. If you could beat them in 364 days, you might be Superman. But there's a criticism there, too, right? Does Cowboy fight too many tough guys too soon? You know, that's that's a hard question to answer. Everybody's different. Every fighter is different. The dude loves to fight. You know, like even every single fighter I know, um, when they get in the ring, there's a, a level of fear and a level of, of chaos that goes on in your mind, and you never know what's going to happen that night. You can train. I've seen guys bust their asses, have the best camps, show up, get knocked out in 30 seconds. You just never know what's going to happen in the sport. You never know what's going to happen on that fight night. Um, the guy likes to fight. He likes to stay active. You know, whether someone is fearful that night, it, it really, if, if he's healthy and he, you know, wants to get in there and do it and obviously gets cleared by the doctors, I, I mean, who's to tell him he can't? You know, this is the profession that he chose. This is the profession that all fighters choose to get in that ring and fight. And I think a lot of guys would be more active if they had the option. You know, Cowboy actually is one of the very few guys that has the option to fight as much as he wants because he goes out there and he fights, you know, doesn't win them all, but nobody does. And it's one of those deals where he's, you know, everybody likes to watch him fight, win or lose, you know, he's a legend of the sport. So I believe that a lot of fighters, whether they're hard fights or not, fight would fight a lot more if they had the option, especially at that mm-hmm. level. All right. So in terms of what you feel like, you know, because Cerrone has been around the game. He has fought the very best of the best, as we sort of just indicated, even in the last year, but certainly beyond that, you're not dealing with a new student. So, like, when you feel like your role here in terms of identifying it, what is it, game plan strategy? Because it's not like you can teach the guy a bunch of new techniques. Not to say he knows everything, but that's just not realistic, is it? No, when you come into a camp, and I think we've, you know, four weeks, three weeks that we've been working together, and my job is I'm not coming in to be the head coach. You know, he's got a head coach in Jafar Ibnir, and they've got a tight group of guys that have been together and, and working for a long time together. So I'm not coming in here, kicking in the door, and going, all right, it's my way or the highway, you know. And like you said, he's a legend. He's been around. The guy knows how to fight realistically, it's a little bit of game planning, tweaking a few things in a short period of time. You can't come in here with any fighter and throw a ton of stuff at him and expect it to stick in a very, you know, in, in the three, four-week period. So, realistically, I'm just here to kind of, you know, I've been holding pads and working with him, striking, getting his footworks together, and, and, and just doing some things that I see that could be beneficial for this fight in a short period of time, you know. So, like I said, the dude, you, you know, you already said it, the dude knows how to fight. So it's just about tweaking a few things, getting the game plan ready and going out there and, you know, putting the best product forward. So since I know uh, Coach John Wood here of Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Coach, I know you're not going to tell me the game plan, but let me ask a sort of different question, which is uh, forget about the frequency of taking fights. That's a separate one. But I mean, once the fight starts and yes, I know that Cerrone is well-rounded. Let's forget about the ground for just a second, even though Pettis is. I know he got submitted in his last fight. I still take him as a very serious threat on the ground in certain conditions. But let's imagine that it stands, uh, stays standing. What are conditions in your mind under which Cerrone operates the best, irrespective of opponent per se? Just tell me in your mind, when he's out there flowing and he's doing, he's doing well, what is happening? 
you know, it, it, I guess like I said, without giving up too much, when when he gets going, when he gets into the fight, when the fight is brought to him, and when he starts to settle in, that's when he does his best work. When he gets comfortable in the fight, you know, when the fight is going, and and after all of the the nerves and everything kind of settle in, um, the dude just you know like he's his body takes over. He gets going, and he's he's kind of a, a robot at that point in time, and everything kind of just goes. So it's it's just really <clears throat> getting him to settle into the fight, and, and you know he's man. I'll tell you what, like working with him for the last month, this dude. I, I mean, he kicks like a mule, hits. He's fast. He's explosive. Everything is still there, like if not better. The guy is is an athlete, even though sometimes he might not come off that way or his persona. Cowboy is is probably one of the most explosive athletic guys I've I've worked with. So I mean, if he can get in there and get in his rhythm and his groove, I, I think he can beat anybody out there. Still, uh, at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, which I know this will, but it was just something that really caught my eye, John. I went back and I watched the Aya Quintify because it was just it was just vintage Donald Cerrone, right? He was so strong and great in that performance. And one thing I really I noticed there was different from a lot of his other fights. Uh, he can obviously fight in the clinch, right? I, I think uh, that it's fair to say that oh, yeah. he's, for, he's formidable there. But Al gave him so much space it gave it gave Cerrone license to do so many different things. To what extent do you agree with the statement that to the extent the opponent gives him space or Cerrone commands it He's able to just more of his repertoire is able to be shown. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that's kind of true with with any fighter. If you give somebody the ability to to work um, their specialty, they're gonna they're gonna do great. So, a lot of people obviously think they can go in there and pressure him and do whatever. But the, the dude's a stud, man. I mean, it, it's not as easy, you know, fighting in general is not as easy as it looks. So, saying you're gonna go on there and just get on somebody and and, you know, pressure him and I'm going to put him, you know, that's, that's easier said than done, especially when you've got someone like Donald who can clip you on the way in, dangerous on the ground, he's dangerous striking. So, <clears throat> you know, obviously, if you give the dude space and let him find his rhythm, you're in trouble, you know, and we're working a lot of different things to make sure that that, that uh, you know, can happen straight off the bell, you know, as he can get in his groove and, and do his thing. and. Um, it's really, like I said, most people think of him as a striker, but he's great in the clinch. He's phenomenal wrestling, great ground. So, you know, he's ready to put the fight wherever, wherever it goes. You had indicated what my next question was going to be, which is he had, he had the fight with Connor is not the first time he's talked about pre-fight jitters and, you know, all the, the dealing with some of the mental challenges of getting into the fight when he needed to. Is there anything from a coach's perspective or even a technical perspective that can help trigger an easier, what do you want to say, uh, mental entry into that fight mode? Are there things you can do to help him with that? Yeah, every fighter's different, man. And, and that, that kind of takes time to build. Like as a good coach, it's not just about showing technique. It's about figuring out your fighter. It's about figuring out the fears, you know, how they're – like people that I've been working with for a while – I can, you know, see the switch turn immediately and, and you try to pull them off, you know, pull them off that ledge. Um, there are a lot of things you can do individually. Like I said, it's different for everyone. Um, you know, every fighter I know, every single fighter, you'll hear this all the time. As every guy comes off, oh, I, I love fighting. It's just, I, that's my shit. Da, 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 da. You know, Donald, I think is one of the more candid guys about, 
being fearful before fights or nervous. Every single fighter I know, except for maybe a very handful, is shit in their pants right before a fight. <laughs> it's really not a matter of can you, you know, should you not be scared or you're not nervous. Everybody's going to be nervous. Everybody's going to be scared. It's can you, you know, can you sack up and go out there and do it? And that's what he does. And I think, you know, people misinterpret mis- <clears throat> the fact of, you know, that he says, man, I'm scared shitless when I get out there. Or I'm nervous or this or that. And every single person I know is. You know, so it's literally, yes, there are things that as you build, you know, rapport with a fighter, figuring out what it is you can do to calm them down or take the edge off. But for the most part, every single one of them is that way, you know. So there's going to be a level of fear that you need to get into that cage that that helps motivate you and push you to go out there and fight harder. You know, when you stop being scared, you start, you know, getting cocky and confident. Sometimes that can turn and bite you in the ass just as bad. So, it's certainly a difficult balancing act. John Wood joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. What about Anthony Pettis? You know, you go back to their first fight. That was Anthony. Uh, I mean, he was really he was a great. It was a great performance by Anthony. It was a great time in his career. One thing I've kind of noticed, though, is the guy has taken a, a metric ton of abuse, in part because he has fought the very best of his generation in many ways, similar to how Cerrone has. Still, I know you guys are preparing for the Anthony Pettis that beat him the first time, but isn't there something to be said for the fact that um, I don't I don't think it is exactly the same guy. He's certainly capable of winning. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the game, ha- it, it grinds you. And we just kind of have to acknowledge it's grinded him a little bit. No. I mean, absolutely. Like it, it grinds everybody, you know, uh, it, it, age is just one of those things that no matter what, it's going to catch up with you in the sport time in the sport. Like you said, the, the level that these guys have fought and have been fighting, you know, Pettis has been fighting at the highest level for years and years and years now. So, I mean, the dude's still dangerous. Just what was it like, you know, two fights ago or a fight ago, he just knocked out Wonder Boy, which everybody thought he was going to get smoked. So you just never know, man. And like I said, that's the great thing about MMA is the best guy doesn't always win. The best trained person doesn't always win. The best, you know, the, the person that's supposed to the odds, it, it doesn't always happen that way. And that's what makes the sport interesting. So you have to go out there and be prepared for the best every time and just you know you've got to do regardless of what his last performance was he can come out there and be a killer everybody's training to get better every single time you know my guy loses or a fighter loses i train them to get better so they're not the next they're not the same fighter that they were the next time and so that's what you have to anticipate when you go out there to fight you know a stud like pettis so it, you know, an MMA is fickle and people start to think, you know, oh, well, this guy sucks. He just, he just lost or he got knocked out. But, you know, and especially at the, the spot where these guys are and have created such a, you know, almost legend in the sport, it's like now as you get a little older in the sport, you, you win one. Oh, my God, he's a legend. He's the best. You lose one. eyes oh, washed up. He's done. He's, it's over the hill. Come back. And it, it, it's, you know, MMA is very fickle. So you just have to, you have to show up fight night ready for the best opponent possible. Pettis is still, as we see, like, you know, two fights ago, super dangerous. He's still got power. The guy knows how to fight. Neither one of them are going to forget how to fight. Um, So you just got to go in there and and expect for war and, you know, hope that you come out the best. All right, last question here for I appreciate your time. The main event, Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. What would you say would be, I mean, there's going to be many factors that probably contribute to success for either participant. But if you could sort of focus in on one key detail of the matchup, what would it be? Man, I mean, it's going to be a war either way. I, I can't see those two guys not 
literally beating the shit out of each other. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just, it's set up like, and sometimes, you know, you have these two guys where you expect, uh, you know, this huge war and it doesn't turn out I, I, that way, but I, I just don't see that happening with these two guys. They're both, you know, two of the most, if not the most game guys in the sport. Um, I think it's going to be bloody. I think that it's really going to come down who can take a better beating because they're both going to take a beating in this fight. They're both going to take punishment. They're both going to just, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm expecting like, you know, I think one of the best fights of the last uh, few years here. So yeah. it's really who can just, who's going to out tough the other one. Cause they're both skilled. They're both tough. They're both mentally tough. Um, I, I expect to see a, an absolute war for that fight. It's going to be unbelievable. Well, we wish you safe travels, Coach, and um, obviously the best things for Syndicate MMA and, and for Donald on Saturday. Can't wait to see it, and we appreciate your time and insight. We always learn something when we get a chance to talk to you, so thank you. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, man. I appreciate it. The Ock and Barack Show. is either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences, that might not happen for another year. The big fighters like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names, are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that? And eventually it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ock and Barack Show, weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern, only on Sirius XM. Fight Nation Channel 156. All the attention is on UFC 249 and one gentleman who will be in attendance. There won't be many, but he will be one of them because he is going to be calling the action. It is the one and only play-by-play commentator for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Their lead, I should say, play-by-play commentator. It's John Anik. John, welcome back to the show. How are you? I am doing well, my man. Pleasure to be with you. Must be a big week if Luke Thomas is calling, so we take that call every day. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that it is. Now, you are, uh, this is a home game for you, I guess, on some level. How far is the drive-ish to get there? So I will say, in mid-April, I was prepared to go to Lemoore, California. So certainly this got dropped into my lap that I will be driving 304 miles, about five hours to Jacksonville, Florida on Thursday. And uh, I feel for my UFC staffers, man, who all are coming across the country, because I was supposed to be that guy going to join them, and they were all going to be driving. So, uh, yeah, we will get in the car on Thursday, go through the testing protocol when I get there, and uh, just prepping away, my man. You know how it goes. Yeah, uh, you know, we had co- uh, Coach Eric Nixick on the show yesterday asking about safety concerns, and everyone's got a different response and a different way to to assess risk management. One of the things he had said was, in general, he felt, I guess the flying is the one thing he didn't particularly care for, but... Uh, he had talked to his family about potential risks and things he was going to do to make sure that they were comfortable with what he had to do and blah, blah, blah. And he said once the family gave him the okay that he basically felt a lot better about it. I'm wondering how you and your family are assessing the risk management here. Well, it hasn't been easy. Certainly these three weeks from April 18th to May 9th have certainly helped put my wife at more ease than maybe she was feeling a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And I don't know that that has much to do with the Florida angle, to be honest with you, because we are in the live event business. And I hope this doesn't sound hard, uh, but eventually I was going to have to rip off the Band-Aid and go back to work. And I didn't know when that was going to be necessarily. But I do know that if 75 fighters are flying in there, I do feel a certain obligation to the athletes if we can't call the fights remotely to get myself there. So process wise, it hasn't been easy, but I feel pretty confident in what the UFC is doing, Luke. I mean, we are going through a legitimate protocol before we can even check in to the host hotel. So 
they are spending a lot of money, a lot of resources. And uh, one thing I will also say too, and you know this well, globally, we deal with so many different things on a week-to-week basis, logistical things with the show, safety and security concerns, the whole UFC safety and security operation compared to what it was in 2011 when I came on board, it's a totally different beast. So I feel like we're in good hands. We'll take the necessary precautions and uh, get out of there as soon as I can. Here's the other part about this. You got to have three fights in the in the Jacksonville area sort of back to back to back I'm assuming you're just going to stay there for the majority of that time or all the time but here's the thing Dana White I think rightly wants to go back to Nevada open up the apex I mean they paid for this beautiful facility and they want to make use of it more than the contender series if they just sort of post up there and they're doing shows continuously there have you given consideration to how you might make arrangements to accommodate that Absolutely. You know, we've thought a lot about that. Of course, I used to live in Las Vegas for four or five years, but now I'm in South Florida. Summer camp is canceled. So we've even entertained bringing the whole family to Vegas for four Mm. or five weeks. If my reality is that we're banging out live events every three or four days for a month or so. But that's the end game, I got to think, or the beginning end game for the UFC is to somehow, some way, get Nevada open, get to the apex in the most controlled environment possible. None of the staff has to travel And to your point, try to crank out a few of these shows and catch up. You know, I'm conditioning myself to the fact that June 6th, UFC 250, if they can get Vegas done, I'm going to fly there and and I probably won't be coming home anytime soon. Although I will say you don't have to go to Perth. Remember that trip you had to take to Perth, Australia, where it nearly broke you? (laughs) You don't have to do that this time. And candidly, I, I was to be boarding a plane to go to Brazil tomorrow. So anytime I could dodge an international, as great as those people and fight crowds are, I'm happy to dodge that bullet for sure. All right, so let's talk about this card, UFC 249. This is an interesting one. Before we get to the matchups itself, to what extent, as a commentator, right, you have to thread a certain needle here. Because on the one hand, you just want to call fights as normally as possible. On the other hand, it's not as normal as usual. There is no audience, and we are dealing with weirdness. And you won't be sitting next to, we don't think anyway, DC and Joe Rogan. To what extent do you feel an obligation to to be normal? To what extent do you feel an obligation to talk about the elephant in the room? I think it's going to be hard to ignore the elephant in the room, especially when there have been training camp circumstances that are less than ideal. And I think for certain fighters, these training camps have really gone off without a hitch. For other fighters, that hasn't been their reality. They've focused almost solely on cardio and and not too much in terms of technical skill or development because of a lack of resources. So I don't think we're going to ignore it necessarily. I've thought a little bit about what I'm going to say off the top of the pay-per-view because I think it needs to be addressed in some way, shape, or form. I don't have my marching orders as far as that's concerned yet. And I'll be real candid with you. I've been asked a lot about what it's going to be like calling fights in that atmosphere. I've never done Dana White's Contender Series. I don't know what it's like to to call fights without fans, except for the early prelims in Las Vegas. But, bro, I got 46 fighters to learn. So I'm thinking less about show formatics, less about some of the logistical things. And these 46 fighters, because I'm doing Saturday, Wednesday, and then I'll go home and and Brendan Fitzgerald will do the next week. But I got 46 fighters on my plate and and trying to give you know charles rosa every bit the respect that dominic cruz gets so that's really where my my tunnel is at least right now all right so let's talk about some of these individual matchups uh first we start with the main event i asked uh various other coaches who've come on the show like give me one thing you think will define success i guess i'll ask you a little bit of a different way which is what is one aspect of this fight you are just keenly focused on in terms of what you think might define who wins and who loses Well, I think a lot of people have pointed to the championship rounds. And if the fight gets extended there, that all of a sudden the pendulum automatically swings to Tony Ferguson. I don't see it that way. I have talked to all four athletes by phone last Friday. 
And big picture, those championship athletes could not be in a better place. But Justin Gaethje, for him and this training camp, it's been largely stable. And these extra three weeks that he's had, there is no overstating the importance of those three weeks. So I do think it's a little simplistic to say that Justin is just going to fade because of his style. Now, I'm a betting man. Do I expect that we're going to see a fourth round? I don't. But I do believe it's simplistic uh, and not giving Justin Gaethje's cardio uh, or heart and everything else enough credit to just say dismissively that if he can't get Tony out of there in the first 15 minutes, he's probably a dead man walk. What level of concern do you have that we're never going to see Tony versus Habib? Well, Gaethje's my biggest concern right now. I mean, certainly the fact that a global pandemic pushed this thing aside the fifth time is totally insane. But I think Justin Gaethje's a live underdog at plus 150 right now. I think this is a very competitive fight, and that would obviously put a chink in the plans, at least if you're looking at September or October for Habib versus Tony. But Tony Ferguson has an all-time great legacy, Luke. He really does. He was the first lightweight to put a double-digit winning streak on paper. Eight years ago today, obviously, against Michael Johnson was his last loss. And yet here he is, having never competed for the sport's ultimate prize. He doesn't give a shit. But I do, as a, as a Ferguson fan, I want him to compete for the undisputed title. And I just hope history looks back upon him the way it should. Because if he's not the best fighter I've ever seen live, certainly is in the top five. And uh, I'm not sure he gets that credit. Uh, I, I wrote about this on Instagram this morning. Again, we're speaking with John Anik, UFC lead play-by-play commentator, uh, about Dominic Cruz. I mean, look. Uh, as much as all of us like Dom, you can't make a case that he was the most deserving of the title. Nevertheless, here he is fighting Henry Cejudo in the co-main event, and it is up. It is his for the taking if he can do so. And when you think about what happens if, in fact, he wins, however improbable others may consider that to be, John, I got to tell you, you know, coming back and then beating Mizugaki was impressive. Coming back and for the second time and beating Dillashaw, somewhat controversial, but still being that competitive, winning the title, very impressive. You come back after three and a half years for the third time now, and you beat Henry Cejudo, who was the triple C, the champ champ, and of course the Olympic champ. I don't know if there's a better comeback story in sports, man, to be honest with you. I can't think of somebody who's had that kind of difficulty with injury, with setback, with time off unranked uh hadn't fought nearly four years and then you go and beat that guy there i'm i'm struggling john to think of some kind of sport comparison that would weigh as heavily on my mind in terms of how impressive that would be no i agree and you put it well as you usually do it would be one of the biggest wins in ufc history and one of the biggest singular accomplishments in the history of professional sports in this country in terms of an athlete parallel a lot of people point to the former carolina panthers standout thomas davis the linebacker who went through one major surgery after another but luke i mean you know the human body well you're a weightlifting guy five major invasive surgeries for dominic cruz three acls a shoulder a devastating arm break that took a lot longer to heal that says nothing of the torn groin or the feet that he has to tape up to do live tv he just has to tape his feet to put a pair of dress shoes on. I've mm. spent so much time with this man and he willed this to happen. I mean, it's, I feel badly for Aljamain Sterling, who in my mind is the number one guy that maybe a global pandemic was the thing that got in the way of it for him. Although Aljo had a, had a surgery in his own right. And I think that for Henry Cejudo, this fight obviously had upside because Dom is the consensus greatest bantamweight of all time. But, uh, Dom's just not an excuse maker. He's one of the most mentally hardened individuals I've ever met. And if the physical is right, as he says it is, I think he's got a great chance. My biggest question technically in the fight is, has Dominic Cruz lost a step? And he says, no, I'm just as fast. I got to see it to believe it. 
right? I mean, here he's up, as I noted on Instagram, he's up against ring rust, and he's up against the fact that they're, I mean, bantamweight is, is teeming with young fighters. You mentioned Aljamain Sterling, but knocking on the door is Peter Yan. Knocking on the door is Corey Sandhagen and other ones, Marlon Moraes to an extent, right? I don't think he's quite done in that division yet either. They're all kind of knocking on the door, and he's 35, 35 for a bantamweight. It's kind of old, to be <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, but virtually, I'm not going to say those guys aren't as smart as Dom, uh, but Dom certainly has a unique understanding of the game that even if he has lost a step, uh, John, still I think he has a bit of a mental edge. He understands the game in ways that uh, he's the only pro fighter that other pro fighters tell me they like it when he commentates so they can learn something. I don't hear that from hardly any other commentator. I've been learning from him since day one. I think his biggest problem in the fight might just be the opponent, that this is a prime and primal Henry Cejudo who doesn't fight emotional. He is as good, and his words, not mine, at connecting mind and body on fight night into this killer package. So he's far more the prime athlete right now. But Dominic's not an excuse maker, right? If you go back and watch Dominic Cruz's last performance against Cody Garbrandt, and by the way, it was a long time ago, but there was a lot of good in there for Dom, even in a losing effort. After round two, Eric Del Fiero calls for some action from Dom on the stool. And Dom sort of points to his shoulder, his right shoulder, and said, you know, you know I can't do that, right? And we didn't hear anything about Dominic Cruz's shoulder. It didn't get repaired until nearly two years later. But his shoulder is completely rebuilt. And I've mm. spent so many nights in a hotel room talking to him about his busted shoulder, that if it's as rebuilt and sturdy as he says it is, He's going to go in there as confident as ever. And uh, if Henry Cejudo is the ultimate bright lights competitor, you know, Dominic Cruz is 22 and two and has only lost once in the weight class. So obviously it's, it's the fascinating of, of a fascinating card. It, it's, it's the fight that jumps off the bill for me. For sure. Have you talked to him about how you're going to call this fight, right? Cause you are colleagues. Have you had a discussion about what you feel like is appropriate territory or he just, you're just going to do what you do. So what's interesting is that I've never circumstantially called his fight before. He's certainly the guy that I've spent the most time with talking about fighting. And as a friend, I've done Felder's fights and Cormier's fights and, and other people's fights. But once the fight starts, Luke, I, the friendship's gone. The emotion is not a part of it for me. It's really not. And I do have a personal relationship with Henry Cejudo, and we've sort of leaned on each other at times in our professional lives as well. So I'm thankful for that, that I do sort of have personal relationships up and down this roster. But no, I mean, I guess for me, it's just wanting to do right by Cruz's style, because I know he's pretty sensitive uh, to the way he's portrayed on broadcast and in different mediums, because there is a method to the madness and the footwork and the movement and everything else. So just trying to do right by him uh, technically and analytically while also staying in my lane as a play-by-play guy and maximizing those 20 seconds when he makes that walk because I'm long-winded when I talk about him because there's a big story. John Anik joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Uh, give me another fight anywhere on the card that has really got you intrigued about its possibility. Well, certainly Francis Ngannou and Jarzinho Rosenstrike could be competing for an interim heavyweight championship, right? If Stipe is not going to defend within a calendar year, this was to be a five-round main event in Columbus, Ohio. And I know people don't like interim titles, but this is a true title eliminator. And certainly if you had told me that Francis Ngannou would be making his 12th UFC appearance and still would not be a UFC champion. Given what we saw early on, I would be surprised. So anytime he's on the card, I think once, if he gets that belt around his waist, 
he's destined for superstardom. Uh, certainly, I heard you talking earlier about Pettis and Cerrone. I think Cerrone has got to be close to the height of motivation for that rematch right now, given what happened against Conor McGregor in January. And then how about Jeremy Stevens and Calvin <laughs> Cater? Right? I mean, that's bulletproof matchmaking if I've ever seen it. You know, Cater wants respect on his name. You know, everybody talks about Jeremy Stevens, 33, 34 UFC fights. Cater turned pro in 2007, and I don't get the sense that he feels the respect. So uh, we'll see if he can maximize what is obviously a big showcase here in four days. This is going to be, a, you mentioned it earlier about some fighters, like especially the ones out of the New York area, they've had a really hard time training, as everyone can well imagine. I spoke to Carla Esparza last week. She said, you know, I lost a couple of coaches because they're caring for an elderly person or they have a kid or their wife's pregnant or something and they didn't want to train. Fair enough. But it wasn't, let's say, a dramatic impact on their training. Calvin Cater, I get the sense that it has been, uh, well, we're going to see, right? Because some people have a deficit in training. We had him on the show two weeks ago. He's had a training camp for nearly 16 weeks. <laughs> and I, 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 he did not know the story, J.A., of the uh, Matt Sarah when he was supposed to fight GSP the first time and then it got canceled and they got rebooked and he had just a whole other round, so to speak, of sparring. And he thought that was the difference maker. And I asked him if he felt like that. He's like, you know, I didn't know that story, but I've actually been feeling exactly like that. That is probably, if I had to pick a card or fight on that card, that's the big sleeper one. I can't imagine that there's one less than that. That is, or more than that, I should say, that is truly a special matchup. And when you go back to and look at Jeremy Stevens' last fight against Yair Rodriguez, what a body shot like that would do to a human being like me. I mean, would I be out six rounds? <laughs> and this guy came back and won the goddamn third round, you know? So I don't sleep on that guy. Yeah, he has 16 UFC losses, but he probably deserves a spot in the Hall of Fame in some way, shape, or form. So I'm excited to see, obviously, what Cater can do. And you're right, we talked to Calvin as well. And I think for a lot of guys who have a small isolation circle, I know Cater hasn't had his longtime primary training partner, Rob, thought healthy for a lot of this time. But you're right. When you have a small isolation circle and people who are your core head coaches, right, like he has with Tyson Chartier, like Sean O'Malley has with Tim Welch, uh, they've left no stone unturned. So uh, excited to see what Calvin can do, obviously, as a Boston guy. He's, he's our best hope for championship glory in the UFC as a Boston guy, even though I'm wearing my Washington Capitals t-shirt for Luke Thomas. Yeah, I appreciate that. Are you going to buy any Tampa Bay gear now that you're a Floridian? No, we're not going to buy any Tampa Bay gear. I'm rooting against the Buccaneers. I'd like to see Tom and Gronk do well, I suppose. But uh, at some point, I will get Bill Belichick's signature tattooed on my body. I am Team Belichick, and I'm excited to see what the Patriots can do to, uh, to mute these naysayers yet again. Uh, last thing on this, well, I, I, it made me laugh. We had Jeremy Stevens on the show one time. He's such an old dog. We had asked him, I forget what the circumstance was, John, but it was something like he got called and offered a fight, and it was a really, really unusual circumstance. This is pre uh, Yair Rodriguez beef in the whole nine yards. And I was like, did you ever consider not taking the uh, fight? And he paused, and he goes... And he, he wasn't saying it like he didn't know he could in, in, uh, in an administrative way. He goes... I didn't know we were in the business of turning down fights. And it was one of those things where like you would never hear that from a newer fighter. And I wouldn't even blame a newer fighter. You know what I mean? Like they're making the right decision for themselves. He is so old school. He is such a dog. I don't know. I wouldn't want every fighter necessarily to, to, to think the way that he does, but I'm glad he does. If that makes sense. No doubt. And you need guys like that. Joe Silva would always talk about Jim Miller. You need a few Jim Millers who, you know, no matter the matchup and largely no matter the date, even with Lyme disease, by the way, when he didn't know it, those guys are answering the call. And I hope that Jeremy Stevens soundbite is in some sort of Luke Thomas show show open <laughs> because I can picture him 
deadpanning that exact line. And, uh, you know, he's out in Cali, but you can't take the Midwesterner out of that guy. That's for sure. Certainly can't. Well, John, really appreciate your time. You've been gracious with it. Uh, travel safe. We'll be looking forward to the call at UFC 249 on Saturday. Thank you so much. Pleasure, man. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.